I'm Dr. Susan Eyrick, and welcome to Earthfire Radio. Earthfire Institute is a wildlife sanctuary and rehabilitation center whose mission is to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature. It is my utter pleasure to speak with Amy Christensen, founder and executive director of the Sun Valley Institute and CEO of Christensen Global Strategies. She has 25 years experience in policy, law, investment, business, and philanthropy, including with Google, the World Bank, the United Nations, the U.S. Department of Energy, where she negotiated the first bilateral and regional climate change agreements, and the Virgin Group, where she helped shape several of Sir Richard's major initiatives. In 2009, she moved home to Sun Valley, Idaho, where she founded the Sun Valley Institute, a center for resilience, to build lasting quality of place locally and globally. She serves on the boards of the National Forest Foundation and the Julianne Wrigley Global Institute on Sustainability at Arizona State University. Welcome, Amy. Hello, everyone. It is my absolute pleasure to have a conversation with Amy Christensen, founder of the Sun Valley Institute. I had the honor of speaking at her conference this last July, and I was just really impressed. I was impressed with the quality and depth and, uh, of the speakers and how cleverly they were put together to impact one another. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about the conference? and what inspired you and what the intent was. Thank you, Suzanne. It's such a pleasure to be here. And thank you for speaking at the forum this summer. You really added so much, a different perspective and level of depth that we often don't get to in conferences on these topics of resilience and sustainability. So thank you. I, so we founded the Sun Valley Institute four and a half years ago here in Sun Valley, Idaho, to be a model for resilience. We saw that we were being impacted by climate change here with fires in the summer and snowfall changes in the winter. And being a tourism-based ski resort economy, recognizing that having trouble in the heart of the winter and the heart of the summer was really putting us at great risk for continuing to have quality of life here, prosperity. And we felt that we had the human resources, the intellectual resources, and hopefully the financial resources to build more of a model and to leapfrog from lagging a bit on sustainability and resilience and becoming hopefully a pioneer in what we call an innovation laboratory for resilience. And so that was the local inspiration for creating the Sun Valley Institute. And then we launched the Sun Valley Forum just a few months into our operations. We had our first Sun Valley Forum in July of 2015. And the goal of that was, was really twofold. One, to bring together global innovators to connect to each other and accelerate their learning, launch new partnerships, catalyze new projects, um, as well as to connect the global innovators to our local 
efforts so that we could uplift our local innovators, but also find new partnerships where these global innovators might want to pioneer and pilot new approaches with us here in Idaho. And given our state regulatory framework, uh, we say if we can do it in Idaho, we can do it anywhere. So we felt that we um, had an opportunity to be a real, a real pilot for folks that would be potentially replicable in other places. One of the words that stuck out for me was um, catalyzed mm -hmm. because among other things in these times, so many people are feeling lost and helpless. And the idea of being able to be any kind of little nucleus to begin to catalyze support and, and hope and change uh, seems to me a critical element in what you do it's also something I try to do, I think, of Earth Fire Institute as a seed center in the sense that mm -hmm. it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. I want to catalyze other people and ideas and inspiration and have that spread around the world. In my case, it's about the relationship between humans and nature. In your case, it's that plus much more. You're including a huge amount of the human element, which is kind of critical. So with the nature element, <laughs> both are kind of critical. So well, and, and the nature element is what ha was, has always been the starting point for me. I grew up with my mom as a nature educator. Oh. She, uh, she was a teacher who got, did some advanced studies at our local community college in the 70s in biology and um, across the sciences. And she became an environmental and nature educator um, including teaching things like seventh grade science, but also um, teaching children's nature classes, like things called ants and plants and bugs and slugs. And so I grew up in this household and being in the Jerry Pack growing up and going to nature sanctuaries in California um, and listening, just being to her, her docent teaching about the nature sanctuaries and what we were seeing. And so I fell in love with nature. I thought it was amazing. I wanted to protect it through my career. And so for me, nature is fundamental and the connection to the creatures, um, the animals, the plants, all of it that we're part of. So that for me is fundamental. And here in Sun Valley, more practically, nature is the underpinning of our quality of life, our economy, um, and everything that makes everyone want to be here in Sun Valley. Um, so uh, when our community started more of a conversation about our economic future and had our second economic summit in 2013, uh, we were planning it and I had been working with Bhutan and the whole idea of gross national happiness and what do we value and what do we prioritize and beyond, and so we called it beyond GDP investing for quality of place. And what does that really look like in our community? And we identified four major categories of what we would call assets uh, that we value in our community and environment recreation was one of those. We had three others around business infrastructure, social and cultural, including school system and healthcare and nonprofits and then, and the arts. And then we had one around transportation because we're so isolated. But so for us, recreation and environment as an asset class, it, we ranked them as about 400 people at that summit in 2013. And that was the number one people really recognize in our community. So we definitely start from that same place, just coming at it in a different way. Yeah, um, and in a central way, it's essential that we come together. Yes. As many possible angles as we can, because life is complicated, the situation is complicated, 
all angles help. Definitely, and I was just gonna say, I, I think that the healing that we can experience obviously out in nature and the whole idea of um, the last child in the woods mm -hmm. and the role of nature, but, but directly the connection to creatures and to the animals and the wildlife. Um, and that, that potential role to, as we go through this very difficult transition that we're seeing and the changes that we're seeing and the work that we do, I think that I'm just curious if you could speak a little bit also about your experience of nature through your lens and the animals that you're working with and that role of healing the human through healing the animal. I can at length. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to jump into such a topic, but I just think it's really powerful. So. Don't let me forget, there's a question I want to ask you about your connection with nature when we finish this, okay. because it's so interesting to me how you went from a heart to basically a lot of financial stuff and practical stuff, but that's the second question. For me, um, there's a main part of the question how we heal, yeah, and how, how we heal our, can heal ourselves through healing the animals you're healing and through nature, healing nature. Well, ultimately, we are of the earth. We, we are born of the earth. We are from the earth. Um, that's where our nourishment lies. We have specific nourishment as from a mother um, and specifically like through food. But in a very fundamental way, the very energy of the earth is in us. As we walk upon the earth, we feel her energy. She is what gave birth to us. We arose from her. And to disconnect from that, we're disconnecting from our very roots and our very sustenance. In a, I imagine, I think the research is going to show more and more in a physical way and also in a spiritual way and an emotional way. I think one of the reasons that people are so disconnected, apart from all the obvious things of technology and all that other stuff, um, I shouldn't say we're so disconnected, we feel empty and we're desperately seeking because we lost our roots, our very roots from where we came and what sustains us. Mm -hmm. So any connection with nature now, that's an interesting thing to say nature, because as soon as you use the word nature, you're suggesting it's something other than us. But it isn't. Mm -hmm. We are automatically disconnecting us. We talk about the environment or environmentalism or nature or the earth. What do you mean the earth? You're walking upon it. You're breathing its oxygen. Every single moment you and I are talking, we're interchanging. The environment is in us and is us. And the very oxygen from the tree in front of me is in my blood right now. How can we be separate? Um, and that connection is so rich because it's vibrant and alive and nurturing and nourishing. And if I look out just at, I know I work mostly with animals, but when we say nature, until we fix how we talk about it, it doesn't really matter at all what it is we connect with. If it's another loving thing, living thing, it's like an energetic electrical flow gets started if we if we connect with it and then there's this interchange between us whatever it is a tree a bear and it can also be a human but when there's a profound connection something happens that flows and we nourish one another mm -hmm. enrich one another um, 
and that makes us healthier. If you want to talk on a practical level, it helps the immune system. If it just makes us healthier and happier, and the whole reason for living, the, the richness of life. So, and that's what we don't have if we disconnect. It's like there's an underlying sense of desperation. So from there, the idea of healing is um, we have immune disorders and we have stress disorders and all the diseases that come from that. So there's a physical healing, but there's also a soul and spiritual healing whenever we truly connect with any other living creature or plant or tree. Mm. Thank you. Um, in particular with some of the animals here, um, we run a sanctuary. Some of the animals become ill for various reasons. And when we work with healing with the animals, we learn so much. We had a, a, a wolf who was supposed to die of distemper, but she didn't, but she had neurological symptoms. And I, I didn't want her to live like that. And I invited someone to try to heal her who does craniosacral work with human nervous systems. And to my utter amazement, and there's a video on YouTube of this, she immediately understood what the strange woman she'd never met before was doing and started to suck the energy in and ultimately became healed. So how does that heal? So yes, I was helping her heal. But look what I learned. Yeah. Look what I got to share with the world. How responsive the wolf was ahead, right? Amazing. My sister is a craniosacral therapist. Oh, well, and she, she does it on the animals too, her dog, her cats, <laughs> our dog, her cat, yeah. And it shows the connection between all of us. The human stuff works because we're fundamentally built, at least with mammals, we're fundamentally built the same. Plants mm -hmm. have their own nervous system that, that you can work with in a different way, a different type of nervous system. So um, does that answer your question? Yes, enough? yes, thank you. And I wanted to ask you, because Timmy, it's so interesting. You're a brilliant woman. Thank you. And what you put together is amazing. Uh, the quality of the speakers, the um, status, if you will, of the speakers that you were able to pull and bring together highest levels of the government, highest levels of business, highest levels of finance, um, of the human world. But, I and you're doing that out of love for the natural world. Mm -hmm. Got to come up with the right word. And, and you're doing that out of love for the natural world from uh, the perspective of such very human institutions. Mm -hmm. right? One of the, you know, when I go to a conference in general, I try to go to all of the uh, presentations. And you had one on insurance. And I thought, it doesn't look really interesting, but you know, I'm committed to go. It was fascinating. So how creative of you. It was fascinating because it was talking about the insurance companies around the world having the front line. There can be climate change deniers, but the uh, businessmen and the insurance cannot deny it. They see all the claims happening, see what's happening uh, precisely. So that type of thing is so imaginative of you. But, you. My, but my underlying point, and, oh yes, and goodness, I could go on and on. You had this wonderful presentation on soil, soil and people who are totally in love with the soil. <laughs> just a really good thing to be in love with. Mm -hmm. um, and then the kids you had there, the young kids, 14, 15, 16, who were suing the government. Uh, so you had this wide range. It was just incredible. So I go back to you. Yeah. Thank you. It, gonna, go ahead. You know, I do the forum in 
part because I see these incredible, the connections among the different issues and all the different levers that we can push mm -hmm. on to make an impact. And so in, my, in the advisory work I've done in the past as a consultant, working with Virgin Group or Microsoft or, you know, especially early stage, for instance, when first started working with Richard Branson and Virgin and, and that question of, here's what the world needs on climate change and really looking at the science and where the big sectors are for the emissions, for sequestration, how we can do this. But then what does that client, person, organization, company bring to the challenge? There are so many different ways that we can solve that we can restore the planet, that we can solve for these issues. And so I try to share my perspective of seeing from insurance to military leaders saying yeah. that this is causing conflict and therefore it matters that we address climate change. It's the number one threat multiplier as Sherry Goodman, who spoke at the forum, shared with us. And she and I served in the Clinton administration together and just, I think it's so powerful. And then to have finance and insurance saying this is a this is a financial and insurance issue. And it ties to your question Nick said you wanted to get to, which is how did I go from kind of a heart of love of nature to more of the cerebral capital approach. And it's so interesting because I went there because I was early, I was done when I was little. I don't remember how old. I wanna say somewhere around six but maybe a little younger, an aptitude test, something like that was done and they called me a sponge and <laughs> of information and what I was seeing and learning. And I feel like when I um, moved to Washington DC to really embark on my career post-college undergraduate and I saw how the world worked and I'd been at the Earth Summit in Rio in 92 and I moved to DC right after that and I just began to see how the big decisions within the system of influencing government and business, how they were taken and what mattered and what got the right decision for the environment to be made. So of course it was the science, but very practically it was, could business solve for this? Did you have a lot of pushback from business or industry? And was this gonna hurt the economy and jobs and weighing that versus, nature and air and water quality and our health. And so all of those, being in the White House, that very first job I had as an intern in the Office on Environmental Policy, watching that decision-making process. And then I went to the Department of Energy for four years and I just, I wanted to change the system. And so I was learning what could change the system, what was compelling to decision-makers to make the right decision for nature. And so that's, where I followed my career is understanding how do we get people to want to protect nature. And, um, and of course, given we're in a capitalistic framework, a capitalist framework, capitalist system, money plays a big part of that and business and finance. And so what's been so fun to watch is from the early nineties when I started my career, and the economics were not necessarily there for environmental leadership by business, by industry, by cities, um, or even by homeowners. You know, if you put solar on your roof, it was more expensive than the power you could get from the grid. If you bought a more efficient car, it was, or a hybrid, right? There was a premium to be paid. And what we've seen since the early 90s when I started my career, I 
can't believe it's almost 30 years ago, um, is that we've had this dramatic shift in the cost equation. And now actually solar is cheaper than coal, uh, than, um, uh, than a lot of the more polluting solutions. And actually renewables just became the larger sector of the UK electricity system just in the last week. They announced that renewables is bigger than fossil fuels in the UK system. And that's because purely financials, right? The, the financial bottom line, even with all the um, about $6 trillion in subsidies for fossil fuels globally every year, right? And it's a combination of direct subsidies and indirect subsidies. So direct subsidies where they give you a tax break to build an oil pipeline. Um, they give uh, price supports and subsidies for energy in certain countries to help because they're more impoverished. And so, but there are, there's a wide array of, of these about 6 trillion in uh, energy subsidies on the fossil fuel side versus on the renewable side. And so even with that thumb on the scale, the economics of renewables are incontestable. And that's what we're seeing across India, China, US, UK, it's happening. And the only thing that's holding us back are the regulatory barriers. So the subsidies, yes, we should be getting rid of those. Countries have been negotiating under the world trade agreements, getting rid of those for years. And fisheries subsidies, same thing. These are financial incentives to undermine our planet and our health and well-being. And we need to get rid of fishery subsidies and fossil fuel subsidies because we're incentivizing things we don't want, which is depletion of the oceans and the fisheries and, mm -hmm. and undermining our climate and incentivizing the things that we do want. And there have been how many decades have we heard economists talking about incentivizing at work, right? And, and not taxing work through income. So it's Anyway, we've got to fix that financial system. And that's where we get back to the question of beyond GDP and investing for quality of place and looking at models like the gross national happiness mm -hmm. model of Bhutan and really understanding what our assets and values are and working towards those and valuing those and incentivizing things we want and not incentivizing the things we don't want. And we're running, those of us who are so passionate about nature and who care about the state of our planet and stability and the health and well-being and the harm that we're seeing already on the most vulnerable who did hardly anything to be a part of the problem of climate change. It's a moral question, a moral responsibility, right? Anyway, so I could go on and on, but for me, the fundamentals is the capitalist system needs, it right now has some guardrails of environmental laws and human rights laws, but fundamentally, it's about short-term financial returns, and that's what's undermining, and we don't value nature. And even though we all know that nature is the most effective solution to preventing impacts from storms, uh, to being mangroves, or they're the ones that are housing the fishery production cycle of the baby fish. <laughs> and, and then mangroves, of course, the part of the islands in Indonesia when the tsunami came that had their mangroves intact were much less impacted. Many fewer people were killed in those areas than places that didn't have those. And same with the storm impacts. And the, we see it here in Idaho with the fires. And when the trees are burnt down and we have a big snowfall year, and then we have warm weather or rains in the spring, you have massive flooding events because the trees aren't there to play their role of holding the soil in place and absorbing the water. And so it's just these follow on effects of just poor decisions. The fires exacerbated by climate change, but then there's these 
human-made decisions to get rid of mangroves because they want to develop a hotel resort because the financial incentive isn't there to protect the mangroves. So even though they provide incredibly valuable role to fisheries production, storm impacts, et cetera. So it's just this, we fundamentally have a faulty system in place. And so I saw that wanting to change that system, but I really need to understand how to make the economic case for better treatment of nature. That was a long answer. Talking with you is not a problem. <laughs> that was fascinating. There's so many thoughts from it. Uh, and uh, it wasn't just not fascinating, it was um, profoundly clear what the situation is. My own work, with, say with the mangroves, not that I work with mangroves, but if I were, um, was complementary to what you do, because I would want to show the exquisite beauty, um, the life forms in it how people connect to the life form. So there's an emotional reason. They're all critical, the emotional, the financial, et cetera. That's just where I come from in my own work. Probably because I can't think as clearly as you about these other things. No, Susan, that is so powerful. And I think that perhaps in my life, I've overcorrected a bit to be so influenced by the system and the limitations that I saw by the force of capital that I forget sometimes how vital it is the love of the creatures and the admiring of the beauty and the, I mean, nature's incredible. I have this wonderful conversation with Tom Lovejoy, who's sort of a senior mentor person I just think the world of, who was sort of the, I think one of the inventors, maybe the inventor of the idea of biological diversity. I mean, Tom was at the Smithsonian for years and had an Amazonian research center and, I was talking to Tom and just kind of nature rocks, you know, was kind of what we were talking about. And I remember Senator Barbara Boxer saying that um, Senator Inhofe had had quite an experience with sea turtles on a vacation, I think it was in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden was passionate about protecting the sea turtles and so they could come together around requiring turtle excluder devices and shrimp nets to allow them to escape. And so again, getting back to the heart that mm -hmm. happens when you have an interaction with those incredible hundreds of thousands, millions of years old um, creatures like sea turtles. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to forget the heart. I don't want to have capital at the expense of the heart. We have facts and I'm a lawyer. And so, you know, making those compelling fact-based arguments, of course, are vital, but we can't forget the why my mom is a nature educator and the children fall in love with nature and then they want to fight for it and protect it. And so we have to remember the compelling power of that. You have one of the things that's really missing. Um, and I associate it with the feminine, not necessarily the female because guys can have it too, but the feminine of combining heart and brain. That's, that's what's critical. Heart alone can be wonderful, but doesn't get you very far. Combining it with our mind and our intellect so that we use our heart to direct and use the abilities of our, of our mind. But we tend to do one or the other. Cold, abstract facts without the heart connection leads only to destruction. Heart alone leads not too much in terms of surviving, uh, yeah, helping things survive. It's the two that are essential. And you may be overcorrected. That's for you to decide 
but um, you have it. Thank you. You know, um, I probably overcorrected in the other direction. I have a PhD, but I don't love academia uh, because to me they go too intellectual mm -hmm. and, and they're missing something critical and doing a fair amount of damage with it actually. And wildlife conservation, the same thing. The animals are species instead of beings and all the terrible decisions that come because of that. And livestock. I remember Sylvia oh, Earle. Livestock. A livestock is a living being. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I remember Sylvia Earle talking about how we talk about fish stocks and uh, fish by the ton. You know, no, these are not products. These are beings. There's a wonderful, you know, so many wonderful books coming out now. They're so exciting. You know, a lot of people read The Soul of the Octopus or The Hidden Life of Trees, showing mm -hmm. all the interconnections. And one of them is uh, What a Fish Knows. Oh, great. And how intelligent and sentient they are in their own way, which of course, you can't survive in the world without having an intelligence, an adaptive intelligence, it's obvious. Um, anyway, if you want, it's What a Fish Knows. And great. I have a coyote starting to howl in the background. <laughs> I love that. Maybe, maybe you won't hear it. No, I hear it, I love it. It's gonna be louder in a minute. We're gonna start them all going. <laughs> That's so perfect. I have my own little coyote in the form of my dog right here. Um, I'm gonna start talking. Hopefully they won't override me. Um, you talked about what's important and what we value. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, the way I talk about it is we don't give enough weight. Yes, nature is important, but most of the conferences I go to, nature is addressed on the side or from a human point of view, but it's the source of life. What are we talking about? It's the source of our life. Um, and we don't, it's, it's like we need to begin up to do a 180 degree flip in terms of what we think is important. We don't give weight and meaning, real weight and meaning. We give weight and meaning to our cars or our jobs or appropriately to our families, but we don't give real weight not real weight and real meaning to trees in the soil, except maybe the people who talked about the passion for soil at your conference, you know. Mm -hmm. um, we don't give real weight. And so we need a 180 degree flip on our values. Absolutely. Use the word use paradigm shift, but it isn't. It's a, a total flip. Can we do it? I don't know. Uh, it's possible. It's what's needed because from that value system or the, the weight of what a coyote is worth, or a dog is worth, or a tree is worth, not in terms of money. Um, unless we do, if we do that automatically, we're gonna make good environmental decisions. And if we had done that to begin with, we wouldn't have any environmental problems. So it starts from the heart and what we give weight to. Yes. It gives us such terrible training in how to use our brains and not connect to our hearts and such terrible training in what's, what's important. And how anything we can do to uh, contribute to that hopefully tipping point where we begin to realize that I actually think it's happening. I don't know if it's happening large enough or fast enough, but actually it's happening. I agree. I agree it's happening and people are realizing what we're losing and how important it is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was going to ask you if, you, if you're willing in, to answer that, if there's a, 
an experience you had as a child that really, I know you listened to your mom and you fell in love with nature, but was there an experience or two that you had that really went deep and from there came all the stuff you're contributing to change? You know, it's so interesting because the f one memory that comes up for me is we were on our, we had a small ranch up here north of Sun Valley in the Stanley Basin and the tributary to the Salmon River called Valley Creek went through the ranch and a steelhead had gotten stuck in one of the irrigation ditches. Uh, had gotten caught, you know, was coming up Valley Creek to spawn and had gotten caught out into one of our irrigation ditches and my mother and I found it and we called Fish and Game to rescue it and just learning about these incredible salmon that had come eight, 900 miles up um, to ultimately 7,000, 8,000 feet um, from sea level over eight dams and to go back to where they spawned and where they were, I mean, where they were born, exact spot. And just the incredible story of that and the power, and as you said, the intellect, and it's just the miracle. They're amazing, miraculous. I just still, just to get just overwhelmed by how incredible they are. And right now, it's my mom had been collecting signatures to breach the lower Snake River dams, four of the eight dams that block our salmon from coming home to Idaho there in Eastern Washington. And there's been political pressure to keep them in place for some barging of some goods like timber and grain and some use of the water in those reservoirs. Um, and Lewiston is considered inland port here in Idaho, which gets tax benefits for them to truck their products through that port. Um, down to the Columbia, from the Snake River to the Columbia and out. And we're almost there, but the fish, but the salmon are, are barely holding on. We are being told by the scientists 10 to 20 years maximum. It's amazing. We had one year, one Snake River sockeye made it back to Redfish Lake, one. And so we have a number of species, the sockeye, the steelhead, the chinook, um, spring, summer chinook. So we uh, sorry, spring and fall Chinook. So we have a number of species who are just barely holding on. And these incredible, incredible creatures been around for millennia and through four dams that were put in place. Oh my God. You know, and, and four dams, 3% of the Northwest power, like just, and there's no excuse anymore. They're just not valuable from a financial perspective. They're called deadbeat dams. Anyway, so I feel like I'm leveraging both my heart and my mind and the facts and the data of there is no case compared to the benefits of getting rid of the dams and what they will do to bring those back and what it'll do for communities like Riggins right near you, right? Where these salmon come when they actually had those runs and when we had our best runs in the last 20 years, we actually had great ocean conditions, a combination of things that started to come back and it could actually have a fishery season, what it meant economically and flourishing for the life in these places that used to have the salmon. It was just a taste of what could happen and we watched it work in other places like the Elwha Dam, and the Edwards Dam and the Kennebec in Maine. And we know it can happen, nature can come back, we just have to give her a shot. And so I guess for me that saving that amazing steelhead very early in my life, I think it was summer eight or nine years old, 10 years old, somewhere in there. And then now to the work. And I just want to find smart 
there are just better ways of doing things. Oh, yes. <laughs> and this is such an obvious one. And it's like, gosh, can we just get out of our own way and make the better decision and um, compensate the people who might be challenged by it, whether it's the growers who need to ship their grains in another way through trucking and let's not subsidize that for, you know, help them do something else, incentivize what we want. And, and then anyway, so that's, that's a story that still is very relevant to what I do. Um, if we make good decisions, it's a complete win-win. That's, that's the insanity of it all. None of this is necessary for money. For happiness is completely unnecessary. It's a complete lose-lose all around. Yeah. Um, I do want to ask if you're able to save that, that fish. We did. Oh, good. Fishing game took it to Valley Creek and, yep, got back on track. And since then, of course, everybody's put in the, the fencing that protects them from going into an irrigation ditch. So everybody's learned over the years. But And you know, now a lot of grizzlies are starving to death because there's not enough salmon for them to catch. Yes. The, the orca and the bears. Yes. Yep. All because of a few barges and grizzlies and, and the grain and politics. Exactly. But what's really important when we talked earlier is to also have compassion for people and to have compassion for the panic of the, unless they're greedy, so right. greedy people. But a lot of them honestly don't see another alternative to logging, say, or grains, or whatever it's. Uh, when I say a value all life, it means all life, including human, and respect and the needs of all life includes human. And I love that you, you were talking about how important it is to have compassion for the people involved as we make these changes. And there's no reason you can't be creative and help them have other good lives. Um, Absolutely. And like what's happening in coal country, um, so many folks who are working on bringing alternative livelihoods to the coal towns that relied forever on being on uh, digging out the coal and all of the jobs that were associated with that and the income, even though it was incredibly difficult from a health perspective. Um, this was a very valued, these communities gave us our energy system, our, our quality of life for decades, and we can't leave them as coal no longer is financially viable because of the cost of natural gas and renewables so being so cheap. And so I love when I see companies go into Eastern Kentucky and other parts of Appalachia, Western West Virginia, East, uh, the Western part of the state of Virginia, to help with alternative livelihoods and what we call that just transition approach. And yeah. I mean, I just saw an article about training them to do beekeeping. I mean, it's just uh, all sorts of great stuff. Humane and fun. Yeah. Just completely positive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are you planning for next year's conference? So definitely um, nature being central to it. And I've been working on the theme and it's about systems change. A lot of what we've been talking about here around the money questions, changing what we value, gross national happiness, different approaches to fixing systems that aren't working for us anymore and circularity, the, con the whole concept of circularity and that's nature, that nature has no waste. <laughs> so that circularity concept. And so um, 
I have the honor of joining uh, Bill McDonough, uh, who created the concept of Cradle to Cradle, wrote the book Cradle to Cradle, and is all about getting rid of all toxics, all toxins, and Cradle to Cradle certification of, of goods. And I was with him in August and, in Iceland, actually. It was incredible. And a company he's working with is coming out with clothing that's Cradle to Cradle certified, 100% zero toxins. So it's good for health, good for the environment, everything. And jeans, blue jeans, cradle to cradle certified, CNA, the European retailers coming out with those. And so anyway, um, so Bill and the concept of circularity, circular economy, um, the whole questions around what do we value and how do we shift our incentives for money. And, I, and we will have more nature and heart and art and we had a bit of that last year with you around the wildlife but also and our connection but also art um, from Von Wong and some of the other great folks that we had last year but very much around that's um, making connections is a concept that I'm thinking about for next year's themes making the connections to have the systems change we have to change these systems and uh, so that's just some early thinking and I can't wait to share once I have some speakers confirmed I'll let you know but we're inviting Bill McDonough we're inviting um, some sustainability folks on the corporate side and a friend of mine uh, runs uh, Amnesty International so Kumi Nidu, incredible human rights advocate longtime climate human rights civil civil rights civic engagement advocate so I ran into him in New York during the climate march on the 20th with the youth and uh, so we was like, why haven't you invited me? And, Done. Kumi's <laughs> incredible. So we'll see. We'll see if it works for him. So I'll let you know. But I'm excited about having those really inspiring big thinkers about the human side of this, the natural side of this, the financial. Again, fewer speakers this year. Probably keep it to about 40. <laughs> so about half the number. You didn't go to the bathroom last time. <laughs> exactly. We'll fix that. And more interaction. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share before we end this? Probably um, just that I've, I've really been struck by how my, my evolution has been from the global to the local. I've been working globally in my career, started in Washington, changed the system, and then came home to Idaho and felt like we could be an opportunity, the leapfrog to hopefully become a place of innovation. And, um, and I just think that no matter where you are in the world and your role in your life, you can make a difference through the decisions that you make about what you eat and where it comes from and who grows it and the energy and the time you spend. The I just feel that there's no matter where you are and who you are, there's such a way to make a difference. And I just think it's really inspiring and exciting time for all of us to be able to access information thanks to the internet you know, get the right information, get, get actual information, facts, but it's a really empowering time where all of us can yeah. learn and do something and be part of it. So. A very exciting time. Lots of opportunity for the human journey. Yes. From something different. Yes. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Susan. Such a pleasure. Same here. Keep up the fantastic work. And you too. Thank you.
This is Dr. Susan Eirich for Earthfire Radio, a production of Earthfire Institute. If you would like to help with our mission to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature, please make a donation at our website, www.earthfireinstitute.org. The soundscapes are by Wild Sanctuary Presents, Bernie Krauss and Philip Auberg. Thank you for listening. Thank you.